The future of insulin innovation is bright. From inhaled insulin and faster absorption to a weekly long-acting insulin shot or smart insulin that doesn't cause low blood sugar. There is a lot to be excited for and today we're getting into all of that and more. Welcome to Diabetech. I'm Justin. I have type 1 diabetes and on here I talk all things diabetes tech, news and management with industry leaders, educators and those thriving with diabetes. Joining me today to talk about where insulin is now, how far it has come and what's in store is fellow diabetes techie David Ahn. David is an endocrinologist and chief of diabetes services at Mary and Dick Allen Diabetes Center at Hogue in Newport Beach, California. Today we get into the history of insulin, why it's slower than someone with a functioning pancreas, and we explore faster insulins in the works. We also cover how the inhaled insulin of Freza is being used today by T1Ds and how we could one day take insulin in the form of a pill. He also was on the show a few weeks, maybe months back, and we talked about the future of the diabetes technology. You gotta check out that episode. It was fascinating, and it, it is so cool to see where the tech is going. New episodes of this podcast release every Monday on YouTube and on all podcast platforms, so be sure to follow wherever you prefer. And if you're on YouTube, be sure to give this a like so other people find it. And if you're on a podcast platform and you wanna give it a rating, go ahead. Keep in mind that anything you hear on my podcast or content on any of my pages is not medical advice. Always consult with your physician before making changes to your healthcare. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by T1D Exchange. You can directly make an impact on diabetes healthcare, treatments, and technology by participating in the T1D Exchange Registry. It starts with a simple survey about your life with T1D and it only takes about 15 minutes. After that, you'll have a personal portal with ongoing T1D study and survey opportunities from research on technology, daily T1D management, and more. Plus, some of these studies even offer compensation. Signing up with the link in the show notes helps support my channel and it allows me to continue putting out free content. You can sign up at t1dexchange.com org slash diabetech or click that link in today's show notes. Now for the episode. David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it's so good to be back. Um, I love your content, so it's always great to be on. Thank you. And people loved our conversation about the future of diabetes technology. If you haven't listened to it, go listen to that. That was one of my favorites for sure. Um, and then today's topic, I realized as I was creating these questions and then needing to do more research and then reaching out to my followers if they had questions that I don't know a ton about this. So I'm excited uh, just as anyone listening to learn about this stuff. So let's let's get into it. Let's start before we get into where we are, where we're going. I kind of want to get a little look at the history of insulin. So insulin was discovered in 1920. Uh, can you give me as brief as you can, a bit of history, a bit of a history lesson as to kind of where insulin's gone over the last, I guess, 100 years. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I'll try my best. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, initially, so insulin, right, the invention of insulin was kind of this groundbreaking invention. Um, because prior to that, people with type one diabetes really had no option. 
Um, so the invention of insulin, which is what, you know, November Diabetes Awareness Month has, is all kind of based around Banting's um, invention or discovery of insulin. Obviously, he did not invent insulin. And so that was groundbreaking. But for many years, insulin was taken from animals. So they, there was not a renewable supply of insulin. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine that it's a little bit of a, a scary concept that, hey, you know, we, we're harvesting insulin from animals. And so is it sustainable? It, you know, there's a lot of challenges there. So I want to say, and don't quote me on this, but I believe in the early 80s or 80s, um, that's when synthetic insulin kind of first came on the market. And that was a really big invention because now we were able to produce insulin in mass quantities and not have to worry about sustainability or have to worry less about sustainability and um, production capability. But back then, a lot of the insulins, um, you know, these are what we would consider older generation insulins because they just weren't as effective. So thing, you know, uh, a kind of an older school regimen would be something like NPH, insulin NPH, and as a long-acting component, and um, regular insulin as your fast-acting component. And when I say long and fast, I actually am using those terms quite loosely because NPH only lasts about 12 hours, and uh, regular insulin works very slowly um, compared to all the new fast-acting insulins we have, and that would work over, say, six to eight hours. So typically, people would take NPH twice a day and um, regular insulin with meals. But it was suboptimal because the the it, these insulins would even the fast acting human or um, fast acting regular insulin would take a while to absorb and then hang out in the system and have a long tail. So the the next gen of insulins came around with uh, say Novolog and Humalog, and those were in the late nineties and early two thousands. And those are kind of the staples of what we consider, I would say, like modern fast acting insulins. Um, those are kind of what is still probably the most popular fast-acting insulins on the market. Um, and those ones, you know, typically are still not fast enough, right? The joke with, and, and this is essentially what this whole podcast is going to be about, is that fast-acting insulins are not fa truly fast-acting. And anybody with the CGM yeah. and type 1 diabetes knows that. But Novolog and Humalog for many years was kind of the, the go-to. And then over the past five years, like in the late 2010s, that's when faster versions of Novolog and Humalog came out in the form of Fiasp and Lumjev. And somewhere along that uh, timeline, around 2010, inhaled insulin also came on, came out as a, an alternative form of a fast-acting insulin. And so Lumjev, Fiasp, and uh, Afreza are kind of the current fastest-acting insulins. Some people call them ultra-rapid-acting insulins, and that's kind of where we are today. Those are kind of the cream of the crop in terms of speed of insulin. Yeah. How does the insulin we're using today, the fastest ones, how does that differ from what's going on with someone's insulin without diabetes? Yeah, it's a good question. So we'll kind of focus the discussion, I would imagine, more so, at least this part, on, on the mealtime insulin, prandial insulin. Um, and so typically, I, I have some notes here, um, but typically in humans without diabetes, um, their natural insulin would start working in about 10 minutes after a meal. That's when you start to see the, the rise of endogenous insulin or their own insulin. You'll see the peak effect of that insulin after a meal be about 45 minutes after the meal. And then it will kind of clear and return to baseline levels 
um, about three hours after the meal. Um, and that's kind of the da- data in, in kind of people without diabetes. Now, you were talking about Novolog, Humalog being the, the most used, then, but then we have those faster ones, Fiasp and, and Leumjeb. Why are people still using Humalog and Novolog when there are these, quote unquote, ultra rapid insulins? I mean, yeah, I was using that's... Humalog. I moved to Fiasp. I, w- I like it way better. It works better. Totally. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's actually quite nuanced. There's a few ways to take this. So one is, I think cost would be an issue um, because there are actually generic versions or biosimilar is kind of the proper term. There's both. They're, they're, they mean, they technically mean slightly different things, generic and biosimilar, but functionally it's the same. It's not, not the brand name that you know, like Humalog and Novolog. There are, are biosimilars for both uh, Humalog and Novolog on the market. So you can get those, you know, per vial cash price is going to be much cheaper um, with those, you know, non-brand name um, versions of Humalog and Novolog. And the faster ones like Fiasp and Lumjev, right now they're still under patent, so you can't get those at a generic or biosimilar equivalent. So that's one argument uh, for why not a lot of people are on those insulins. I think the second is is honestly just lack of um, awareness, both on providers um, and patients. I think a lot of a lot of um, doctors are not aware. Like oftentimes, I'm going out to different um, primary care offices um, or people that you know they don't focus on type one diabetes or type two diabetes the same way that you and I do. So they just haven't really done the research to realize that there are newer options that might make a meaningful difference for them. So I think I'll, this is where something like your podcast wow. can be really fantastic because maybe your patients or your viewers can talk to their doctors and say, hey, have you heard of Loomjev? Have you heard of Fiesp? Have you heard of Afreza? And then the third is, you know, market, like, um, you know, corporations. Like, I think in my experience, I've noticed that like Novo and Lilly who make these products, um, they have not been putting as much marketing muscle into getting the education out around this. Largely because I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, like, Novo's spending a lot of energy and finances on Ozempic, and Lumjev, or sorry, Lily has Manjaro, and so I don't think they're devoting as much marketing um, dollars and advertising dollars to getting the word out both to, to users and um, doctors. Wow, that's interesting. And, and a point I wanted to make was, you know, it was recently, or maybe like six months ago, when a bunch of pharmaceutical companies, insulin companies, we're lowering the price of insulin, but I believe they weren't lowering the price of Fiasp and Leumjev, these ultra rapids. They were lowering the prices of other ones. So for people who don't have health insurance, at least in the US, they may not um, financially be able to afford it. It, would, it could yeah, be say, a possibility, right? Totally. So you make a good point. I will say that I'm pretty sure, or I'm, I'm, I'm confident that Lily has lowered, like Loomjev is included in the $35 okay. a month price point. Um, I'm not as familiar with Novo's okay. pri- insulin reduction program. Um, but so, so I, to be fair to Lily, they have included okay. Loomjev in the $35 a month price point. Okay. Thanks for the correction. Wh- why does it take so long for these insulins to hit? What is, what is happening when you inject these insulins? Yeah, it's a good question. So when you inject insulin, it basically, you know, you're depositing it essentially into subcutaneous tissue, right? It's it's fat. And 
um, and tissue and rather than directly into the bloodstream. So the pancreas, which normally makes insulin, has a direct pipeline into the, the main distribution channel in our body, which is our bloodstream. So it can put insulin directly into the bloodstream. Whereas when you inject insulin in the periphery, which is like in our subcutaneous tissue, it has to go through these small channels called capillaries. And basically the small channels will then slowly feed into the general bloodstream. So first it has to go from the tissue to the small capillaries to the larger piping around the body. And that's basically what leads to um, the delay in insulin um, activity. Interesting. Okay. Let, let's move to inhaled insulin. And mm -hmm. first let's start with beyond the obvious that it's inhaled. What is inhaled insulin? <laughs> yeah. How does it work? Totally. So it's funny that you say that because I typically start my, you know, when I'm talking to a patient about a Frezza, I always say the most fascinating thing about a Frezza is that it has nothing to do with the fact that it's inhaled. Um, because I think that's what you're drawn to, right? When you think about a Frezza, you're like, wow, it's inhaled. And when you talk to like, say investors or people that don't have diabetes, they're kind of like, great. I'm sure people don't want to do injections. They must love a Frezza. But I find that in practice, the biggest selling point for a Frezza is it's um, what we call its pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, which are basically fancy words for how quickly it works and how, how quickly it clears, right? So uh, they talk about fast in and fast out. And so what makes a Frezza really special, in my opinion, is that it works faster than any injected insulin, including Lumgev and uh, Fiasp, and it clears faster than any of those insulins as well. So it much more closely mimics what the human body does. And that's why you, you have, it, it, it works to kind of reduce that spike after your meal because it starts working faster. So that speed of, of a Frezza is actually what I think makes it most compelling. Of course, every once in a while, I'll meet patients who like will not inject insulin for the life of them. And of course, for them, the, the fact that it's inhaled is really nice. But the bulk of people that stick with a Frezza, in my opinion, are those that appreciate its speed rather than the fact that it's inhaled. Okay. Is, is a Frezza the only one out there right now? Yeah. Um, so in the past, and you know, people that have been living with diabetes for a while will probably remember this, there was a product in a, called Exubera that um, was out in like, I want to say the mid 2000s, like the aughts, I guess as people call it. But it was kind of like, it almost looked like a bong. It was like this huge tube and it would kind of fill with the gas and then you'd inhale it. So it was kind of comical um, in appearance. Okay. It wasn't very, it was very bulky. It was kind of this, you know, it, it did not succeed as I guess is what I'll say. So yeah, it is the only inhaled insulin on the market now. Okay. Okay. And how are people incorporating this into their lifestyle? Like, are, are they on automated systems or are these only people who are MDI or, or both? Yeah, I would say there are Afreza users, um, successful Afreza users on all various combinations. But I would say the bulk of people at this point in time are using Afreza as a, a supplement to MDI, multiple daily injections. And they tend to fall in two camps. Um, I have one camp of patients who love the Afreza as kind of a tool in the toolkit, right? Think of it like you have, you know, your toolkit with all your different tools, and they like that the Afreza has that fast in, fast out, 
and they will primarily use it in specific situations, primarily for corrections, right? So say two hours after a meal, you're higher than you want, you're tempted to do your rage bolus. Afresa works really well in those situations because it will drop your sugar fast and then it'll clear fast. Because the part of the problem with the whole rage bolus is that if you take injected insulin when you're rage bolusing, that long tail of that second shot will often make you go low three, four hours after your rage bolus. But if you do your kind of what I call rage bolus with a Frezza, it's not as problematic because it clears around the two hour mark. And so you don't have that double stack effect, um, you know, four or five hours after your meal. Um, so it's really good for those postprandial or post meal corrections. It's also that same camp I'm talking about will also kind of use it for very specific meals. They might say, I'm going to eat cereal right now, and I know cereal skyrockets my blood sugar immediately. Then they'll maybe take a Frezza for those types of meals that spike their sugar immediately. Now, a second camp of MDI users are kind of all in on a Frezza, and that's they're just using a Frezza as their primary um, fast-acting insulin. And what they'll often do is they often will have to take two shots, uh, or sorry, two inhalations per meal because a Frezza almost clears too fast. So if you take it before a meal, especially if there's a decent fat and protein content in that meal, they may need a second dose two hours later after the meal to kind of combat that second rise in their blood sugars. Um, how does how does yeah. dosing work? Like what is one, I guess, inhale? Inhalation, one... yeah, no, yeah. totally. And I should have gone over this. So it's it's this is one of the challenges with the Frezza, and it can be a little bit intimidating, but there's basically three dose sizes. Um, there's, um, let me see if I, I can show you. Yeah. So when someone uses a Frezza, there basically is a whistle-like device. Um, it really looks like a whistle, and this is just the cap. And then there are three different dose-type car cartridges. And so it's like a blister pack. And you would open up the blister pack, and then you would pick the specific dose you're going to take. So there's a four-unit dose, an eight-unit dose, and a 12-unit dose. And Whoa. say we pick, we pick the <laughs> dose we want. That's a lot of want. units. Yeah, but the good news is that um, the dosing scale is actually a little bit different than um, a typical injected insulin shot. So four, oh. un it's about think of it like a factor of two. So a four-unit Afresa cartridge is actually about the equivalent of a two-unit dose of Novolog or Humalog, okay. and eight units is equivalent to four, and 12 units is equivalent to six. Now, for certain people, even a two-unit Humalog dose is too much as a lowest dose, but most people, I would say in my patient population, two units isn't overwhelming. Um, so yeah, so you would basically put the cartridge, it fits into this slot right here, and then, and then you close the, what I call the whistle, and then you would... And that's it. And then that would be how you take those, the insulin. Those were fake cartridges, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. <laughs> that was a demo. Yeah. Uh, that was a demo <laughs> insulin, yeah. Okay, okay. I got scared <laughs> for a second. It's like don't yeah. don't go low yeah. on me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, that's so cool. That's really neat. And I guess would someone who's using that they carry around, you know, is that whistle reusable? You just keep loading it? Correct. So you you know okay. now that we're done, you would just basically empty it out. You can take out, dispose of the cartridge inside, okay. and save the whistle for your next dose. Okay. Do you do you see a future where a Fresa is used alongside 
automated insulin systems like Omnipod 5 and Tandem. Do you think that these companies will create the ability to log, I had a Frezza with this? Because that would be needed, yeah. right? 100%. I think they, I think they should. <laughs> um, but I think it's really challenging, right? And so, um, so this is where there's actually nuances between automated insulin delivery systems. So I actually think Afreza pairs quite well with Control IQ, with the tandem systems, because the tandem system is very, um, it's an open box. So you can work around how Control IQ works. So for example, patients I find that, you know, generally the people that like Afreza are people that are a little bit more locked into their blood sugar control. They really don't like spikes after their meals. Um, they're very proactive about monitoring their blood sugar. Oftentimes, I'll have those patients using their control IQ, I'll have them put their pump on sleep mode 24 hours a day. And what sleep mode does with control IQ is that it takes away the auto-correction boluses, and it only relies on basal adjustment, and it has a tighter target correction um, target. So basically, in standard mode, control IQ targets a blood sugar between 112 and 160, but in sleep mode, it targets a glucose of 112 to 120. So it has a tighter target, but less of a sledgehammer to use because it disables the auto-correction boluses. So what I find is my patients that use a Frezza with Tandem will go on sleep mode 24 hours a day, just use the basal adjustment, the finer target, and then use a Frezza for their corrections and meals. And they can actually get really, really tight control that way, um, and it doesn't impact the algorithm. The, the challenge with using something like Omnipod 5 and Medtronic um, is what you already talked about, is that if the for those algorithms, they auto-adjust the basal settings um, and parameters based on total daily dose. So if you're taking half of your insulin or a third of your insulin via inhaled, um, then the algorithms in Omnipod 5 and Medtronic won't compensate for that, and they'll just think you need less insulin in the day, and as a result, slowly make your algorithm less aggressive. So Afreza in um, um, something like Omnipod 5 can be useful in very, very, you know, like emergency situations or once in a while. Um, whereas um, if you use it all the time, it can really throw off the accuracy of the algorithm. Interesting. Are there drawbacks or side effects to Afreza? And are is Afreza the company name? Uh, Mankind is the name of the company. Okay. Um, is Mankind working to make those better? Like, are they are they working on a Frezza to be an even stronger device? Got it. Um, I can't... What I do know that they're primarily putting their efforts in, so they do have a clinical trial right now um, where they're putting it head-to-head -head against automated insulin delivery. So that should be really interesting to see, yeah. you know, can you have comparable comparable results against automated insulin delivery. I also know that they're trying to get um, indications for younger aged patients. So I don't believe it's approved yet for the pediatric population. So they're trying to expand the, the market for Afreza. Um, and I do know they've explored, I don't know how seriously they're exploring, but I do know they've also, you know, kicked around a little bit on alternate cartridge sizes. So some people want a two unit cartridge. 
some people want a 24-unit cartridge or a 16-unit cartridge. I do believe they've kind of poked around there, but I haven't heard concrete plans for them to release a higher or lower dose cartridge. But it's that's another opportunity to explore. I don't think they're necessarily working on changing the speeds because the interesting thing about Afreza is it's actually regular human insulin. It's the same thing we talked about in the very beginning. It's actually not one of these rapid-acting, fast-acting insulins. But the reason why it works so fast is because it's inhaled. And when you inhale something, it actually gets absorbed into the bloodstream almost immediately. And that's why it works so fast. So the insulin itself is actually an old-school insulin. It just works really fast because it's delivered to the bloodstream fast. Wow, yeah. I almost want to like do an experiment where I go on a Frezza for a couple weeks and see how that goes. I mean... It's funny, a lot of my patients say, you know, having type 1 diabetes, it's like a science experiment every day. And I feel like you, with all the different companies you're talking to, all the different types of people, it's like, I feel like you can make a TV show about, you know, you adopt one strategy for two weeks and then another strategy for two weeks. Uh, A whole series, yeah. And hope that my body doesn't hate me. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Like, not high all the time. Uh, You're like the guy theory of of insulin. (laughs) Exactly, that's my next step. Um, all right, let's let's move on to ultra rapid insulin. We kind of talked about it a little bit. There's research I know of going on. There was mm-hmm. the company Aracor. I had a follower tell me uh, about this clinical trial in October of 2022, where they were able to show an accelerated insulin absorption compared to Nova Rapid and Fiosp. What do you know about either that or any research going into making ultra rapid or really the next step of insulin? that we use in this way um, faster? Yeah, so what we've kind of been talking around, um, and your audience all know because they they live with this every day, is that insulin is just not fast enough. It's not, that's the biggest downside with insulin. Whether you're injecting it, whether you're getting it through a pump, insulin is just not fast enough. So the... There are a few um, startups that are working on newer, faster-acting insulins, even faster than what we have today. But one thing that I want to kind of clarify, a lot of people don't know that Fiasp and Lumjev are actually the same thing as Novolog and Humalog, but it's just Novolog like 1.5 and Humalog 1.5 because Fiasp is still Aspart insulin, which is the same insulin in Novolog. What, the way that they make it faster is by combining the insulins with what we call excipients. That's just a fancy term for extra chemicals that help it get absorbed faster, right? Because remember, the name of the game is trying to get it into the bloodstream as fast as possible. So both Fiasp and Lumjev have different types of additives that basically help the Humalog and Novolog get absorbed faster. So if you look at your box of Fiasp, it says Aspart, just like your Novolog says Aspart, but it has excipients added to it to make it get absorbed faster. So in a way, even though Fiasp, we kind of think of it as like this faster, you know, faster version of of Novolog or this next generation of Novolog, it's actually just an iteration of Novolog. Now, the company that you're talking about, Aracor, I don't know much about, but I actually got turned on to it by a patient of mine. Um, I was, you know, I'm like the diabetes tech guy and he was telling me about this insulin and I was like, was it Fiasp? Was it Lumjev? But um, he was able to tell me about it. And yeah, it was the same company. And he was actually part of the trial, and he swears by it. He's been, it's like he really misses the speed of the insulin that he had when he was using this product in the trial. 
And he said it made a, a clear difference, better than Afreza, or sorry, better than Lumjev and better than Fiasque. Because um, initially I thought it was one of those. So we were trying those and he was like, no, it's just not the same. And then he eventually looked at his paperwork and told me the name of the product. So it is exciting that there's at least one company we know that is trying to work on a faster, you know, totally different alternative to Novolog and Humalog, unlike Lumjev and Fiasp, which are just kind of additives added to the existing products. Um, so that's kind of like the development on just faster, fast-acting insulin. There is another um, focus of research on what's called liver-targeted insulin. Um, and there's a startup there that's working on basically, an, I guess, for lack of a better word, like an additive that you can add to something like Humalog or Novolog that will help it get absorbed by the liver faster. And um, without getting too much into it, the, the primary benefit there is that it actually reduces your risk of hypoglycemia because the liver actually um, sees the... Um, typically, when someone doesn't have diabetes and you eat a meal and you're endogenous, your own body's insulin levels rise, the liver is directly right there and sees immediately that there's more insulin and it uses that insulin to kind of modulate your risk for hypoglycemia. It kind of creates a buffer for, a risk, for the risk of hypoglycemia. The downside with injected insulin or insulin through a pump is that it's kind of doing that pathway backwards. It's starting at the end and slowly working its way to the liver. So when you have this liver-directed insulin, it actually significantly has been shown to significantly decrease your risk of postprandial hypoglycemia. So it allows you to almost be a little bit more aggressive with your insulin at mealtime because you have less risk of going low and you give your body a little bit more of, of, of a buffer against hypoglycemia. So that's kind of another big direction towards faster acting insulins. Um, and then is that, there is, is that, yeah, sorry. Sorry, is that, is that the smart insulin? That so, I, I had that in my yeah. questions too. Is that, is that the same or is, are those two different things? I think generally they're considered two separate things. Okay. Um, so yeah, when people talk about smart insulins, and this is where, you know, when we talk, start talking about oral insulin and smart insulin, which we'll briefly talk about now, this is kind of farther out in the future. And I don't think there's as much concrete clinical data. I don't think there's as many real options that are, you know, working through the pipeline. Um, but when we talk about smart insulin, um, the beauty there is that it basically only works when you need it, right? So imagine... The problem right now with injecting insulin is that you can go low, right? Whether it's long-acting or fast-acting insulin, if you inject too much, you will go low. But if you take smart insulin, the theory is you can hopefully engineer an insulin that it kind of is hanging out in your system, but it only activates when your blood sugar is high. So it doesn't activate when your blood sugar is normal or low, but as your blood sugar rises, it kind of naturally will start to activate and help lower your blood sugar. So that's kind of the concept of smart insulin. And then oral insulin, of course, is basically exactly what it sounds like, right? We talked about needle phobia with Afreza, and there are some people that get really intimidated by having to inject insulin. Um, and so if you can take it orally, then, um, then that would help solve a problem for them. The challenge is a lot of a certain medications like insulin, they just don't get absorbed by the gut. Even if you eat insulin, uh, every once in a while you'll have a patient, you know, try to overdose or they're accidentally eat insulin. 
it doesn't really get absorbed into the bloodstream. You're not going to go low. Um, but what companies are working on are they're working on special technology to help the absorption of like a pill of insulin to kind of help it get absorbed into the bloodstream. But I think both oral insulin and kind of these smart insulins are still quite a ways off. Uh, and then, okay, so let, let's go back to ultra rapid insulin just for another moment. Besides that one company, Aracor, are there any other like studies or like companies working to bring the next step of insulin? Like, is that, is that coming relatively soon at all? Yeah, it's a good question. To my knowledge, I'm not aware of any other startups that are working on fat, like purely just faster acting injected insulin. Um, but I could be wrong. Um, or even the big players. Yeah, but I think typically what happens is that it kind of starts with these startups and then as they show promise, they get acquired by gotcha. um, the big companies. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a business person, but if Aracor continues to show positive data, I would imagine what would likely happen is they would then get acquired by a Novo or a Lilly or a Santa Fe or something like that. Okay. And, and I'd assume that in order for this insulin to be used with automated systems that they, that those companies like Insulet and Medtronic and um, Tandem would need to develop a new algorithm or, or they would it right in order to be like FDA approved. Yeah. It's a good question. It's tricky because so, so the, the world of ultra rapid acting insulins and insulin pumps is actually really confusing. Um, you or your audience may not know this, but FIASP and Lumjev are technically FDA approved for use in pumps. But ironically, that does not mean you can use it in every brand of pump because the, what, ha what happens is officially, it almost has to be approved on both sides. So both Lumjev and FIASP are approved for use in pumps on the insulin manufacturer side. But then on the pump side, each pump company has to then clear every type of all these types of insulin for use in their pumps. So for example, Omnipod 5 has gone through the data to, to show that they are compatible with all these insulins that we've mentioned. Um, whereas Tandem has not gone through that data to show that. So technically, something like Lumjev or Fiasp is off-label in a Tandem pump, but on-label in an Omnipod 5 pump. That being said, I still have many patients that use Lumjev or Fiasp in a tandem pump, but I just think it's kind of this funny thing that a lot of people don't know that technically, even though it's approved for use in pumps, it also has to be approved by the pump manufacturer. Um, so anyways, but to get to your original question, um, yes, in theory, to optimize these algorithms, I think they will need to uh, compensate for the various, um, the, the slightly different kinetics of the insulin. However, a lot of times they're close enough, right? So for example, Omnipod 5, Control IQ, even the 780G algorithm, I would not have any hesitation telling my patients to put Lumjev in, in the pump or Fiasm in the pump um, and give it a try because it's going to be close enough that I don't think it's going to cause any problems. Um, so, but, you know, it, it, with these future insulins, like say um, Aracor, if it works to have if it's twice as fast, let's say, than Fiasp, then yes, they probably will have to tweak the algorithms. 
But if it's that much of an improvement, I would imagine these com companies would be excited to update their algorithms because it would be a better outcome for patients. Okay. I've had some followers tell me either that they've experienced or have fear of using an insulin like Fiosp or Leumjeb with their pump and it getting clogged. Is that mm -hmm. an actual thing that's happening? Yes, it is an actual okay. thing. And that's something that I do advise my patients to be aware of. There are a couple, there, there are really two things I tell patients that um, are using a pump. Um, I warn them about if they're starting to use something like Lumjev or Fiasp. So the first is that you can have an increased risk of pump occlusions. And that has been seen in studies. And I think it's because of those excipient additives that I mentioned before. There are slightly more chemicals in the pump or in the, in the insulins, and those can get caught up in the tubing. They can crystallize uh, a little bit easier. Um, so yes, sometimes I'll have to tell patients to either change their insulin infusion set more often, right? So maybe they usually change it every three days and I'll say, nope, now you should change it every two days. Um, so that definitely is a concern. The second thing is that the insulins can cause um, some stinging or irritation at the site, especially with Humalog more than, uh, sorry, with Lumjev more than Fiasp, there can be some stinging or burning um, at the tubing site. So I tell patients to be aware of that. For some people, they don't even notice it. Some people, it's mild enough that they don't mind. Um, but I've had some patients discontinue it because it's just, it burns too much. Yeah, it's funny. So I use Fiasp um, and I don't know if it is the Fiasp and it's so rare, but occasionally I'll get like a little burning sensation with, with a specific site. And... Uh -huh. It can be like an annoying sting, but there is something gratifying of being like, oh, the insulin's going in. Like I know <laughs> for sure that I'm getting yeah. insulin delivered because otherwise when there is no sting, and like I said, this rarely happens, but when there isn't, sometimes I'm like, did the, like it's hard to trust that this tiny micro unit like went into your body <laughs> and you don't hear anything. So um, there's something gratifying about it, I'll say. Um, let, let's move into long-acting insulin. Last time we spoke, I believe it was you who mentioned that there is currently, uh, we're either close to it or, or there's research going into a weekly long-acting shot. So, so long-acting insulin is something that people who aren't on a pump would use, right? Because our pumps give us our long-acting insulin just over a long period of time. Uh, but if you're on multiple daily injections, you would take it as of now, you would be taking a shot once a day. So how far off are we from a, from a one week Lantus and, and cut, yeah, where, where's everything with that? Yeah. So weekly long acting insulins are actually pretty close on the horizon. So Novo has a product called Icodec. That's the generic name. Um, if, and when it gets FDA approved, it'll have a different brand name. Um, but they're, they've already published data from their phase three clinical trials. And phase three clinical trials are kind of the last step before getting FDA approval. So they already published data earlier this year, or they announced data earlier this year, um, showing um, pretty favorable results in both people with type one and type two diabetes. So generally speaking, um, the once weekly insulins in both populations showed basically that it worked just as good from an A1C perspective as long act, like our typical long-acting insulin, whether it's Lantus or Traceba. Um, and 
in certain populations, in, in, people, with, um, in people with type 2 diabetes, um, there was no change in the rate of hypoglycemia or severe hypoglycemia. But in type 1 diabetes, one downside is that there was a little bit more hypoglycemia in the type 1 population using ICODEC. Okay. And similarly, uh, Eli Lilly has a product um, called BIF or Basal Insulin FC, and that insulin there, it has finished their phase two clinical trials, and they'll they'll be starting their phase three, three clinical trials soon. So I think in theory, these basal once weekly basal insulins could be out within you know as early as twenty twenty four. Wow, that, that's incredible! And and you kind of touched on something uh, that I had in my notes. And a fear of mine. So when I was on multiple daily injections, taking that long-acting insulin, when you take that, you're stuck with that. That is in your system. The nice mm-hmm. thing about pumps is that they'll regulate your long-acting insulin. They'll cut. They'll cut it down or or increase that that basal insulin. So when you work out or you don't eat as much or you eat more than expected, it can it can compensate for that. It gives you a bit of a cushion. With this, there there's a, it's not really as it's not the same. And so my worry is that you could have more hypos because you're stuck with it. You, you wind up working out more, eating less, whatever. How does that work? Like you are stuck with it. How will people need to compensate? Just, just eat more if they decide to work out more or something? Yeah. And that's a really, uh, really smart insight because you're right. You know, if you're going to be going to the Grand Canyon and hiking every day um, and you took your weekly insulin three days ago, you're at a high risk of going low during your trip. And so personally, I think this is going to be a product that is a lot more popular in the type two population Yeah, because they still have, you know, some insulin reserve on their own, their own body. Um, And a lot of these patients are not even necessarily taking fast acting insulin at all. And so I suspect that weekly insulin, weekly basal insulin is going to be, at least in the beginning, a lot more popular in the type 2 market. Um, keep in mind, a lot of these patients with type 2 diabetes are already getting used to weekly Ozempic or something like that, or weekly Manjaro. So being able to take one shot a week of Ozempic or Manjaro, one shot a week of Icodec, and get really good control as a result, I mean, that's a pretty big win. Now, one interesting thought is down the road... Um, I do think that as people get more familiar with it, both doctors and, and people with diabetes, there may be an opportunity, say, you can kind of underdose your basal, right? So maybe you normally take, you know, the equivalent of 20 units of Lantus. Um, maybe you take 15 units of Icodec or whatever the equivalent conversion is of 15 units a night of Icodec. And maybe you use something on, maybe you just make your bolus regimen a little bit more aggressive, um, or maybe you use like automated insulin delivery overnight. Um, I think I t- we talked about this on our last call, but there's a company working on um, overnight automated insulin delivery. So it's a patch pump that you just wear mm-hmm. overnight. And it can just be a little bit of a touch-up insulin that you need in the nights where you need more. So I do think there's an opportunity maybe down the road as we get to know it better in type 1, but I think the market initially, it makes a lot more sense for people with type 2 diabetes. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting as we have this conversation, seeing all the different avenues of treatment that already exist that are coming and how you can find all these different ways to combine them. But it is, you know, it is a science experiment, figuring out what works best for you. And then a layer on top of that is 
your diabetes is so much different than someone else. So someone who's using these two products at this rate, you know, may not work for you. So um, I'll definitely want to play around with all this stuff in, in certain ways and see what works for me. Let's move on to, we kind of got into it, but smart insulin. I just want to touch on that a little bit longer. Can you explain to us again, like what exactly smart insulin is? Yeah. So smart insulin, it's kind of a blanket term for insulin that only works when it's needed. And that's why it's smart. So imagine if you could just take I'm just making this up at this point, but like, say you could just take 50 units of insulin, inject, inject it, but not be worried about going low because that insulin would only work to lower blood sugar when your blood sugar is above, say, 150. So while your blood sugar's, you know, 100, 110, 120, that injected insulin just is hanging out inert, not doing anything. And then when your blood sugar rises after a meal to 165, then that insulin kind of activates and starts to work until your blood sugar is back down below 150 or something like that. Um, so in a way, it basically reduces your risk of hypoglycemia, and it's almost like automated insulin delivery on its own because if you can engineer it in such a way that it only works when it's needed, it, it will basically kick your blood sugar back down whenever you go high because that's when it becomes active and starts to work. However, I think the concept sounds amazing, but as far as I know, and I'm just a guy who, you know, <laughs> I don't know everything that's going on, but I have not heard um, very specific products that are yet in testing phases. So I think right now it's still very much in the research phase where people are in the lab trying to create, trying to engineer that process to be able to work in the way that I described. Okay. And then you put 50 units and you don't use it all. Would you just like pee it out? At the end of the like, <laughs> well, yeah. So I, maybe I picked a high number, um, but like, or does it theoretically you, just stay there until it's used? I, I mean, it would probably, you know, get metabolized at some point. So yeah, maybe okay. a better example would be, you know, may, say your typical meal time shot is five to ten meal, five to ten units to cover your meal. You could just take ten units with every shot, and then, you know, even if you overshot a little bit, it wouldn't be a problem because once your blood sugar drops down to the normal range, it would stop working. So it would just give you a lot more wiggle room and less fear of hypoglycemia. Wow. That, I mean, that sounds amazing, but it also sounds very complex. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's understandable why that, you know, could be a little ways off. And then I know we touched on it again, but I just want to get a little more into it is that oral insulin pill. So, um, there is that one company Oramed working on it and, you know, I guess the challenge they say is that the GI tract isn't, doesn't absorb large molecules. So one of their mm -hmm. goals or the goal of an insulin pill would be to make it, I guess, these molecules, molecules small enough to be absorbed. Um, right. Do you know, like, is that, is that, does this seem pro like a promising thing in the future? Yeah, that's a really good question. I personally don't get too excited by it. Let's face it. Unfortunately, you know, there, there's that meme that you always see on, you know, type one social media where it's like, you know, I know people with type one diabetes get really frustrated when neighbors will say, oh, I could never inject insulin. And, you know, people with type one diabetes are like, well, you know, I'd like to live and not die. Uh, so you get over it. And, um, and I kind of feel like 
for the for many people, for type one diabetes especially, while of course injecting insulin is not fun, and, and not to say that it's easy, I think it's something that a lot of people have kind of come to terms with, um, and and so. I, I just get a little bit concerned about the efficacy. I, I think the hassle of trying to get that oral insulin to be absorbed may not be worth the effort. An example I would think of is um, it, Ozempic, right? For example, everyone knows about Ozempic. It's an injected medication. Of course, oral Ozempic would be, you would think, would be this amazing thing that everyone would love because then you don't have to take shots. So there actually is an oral Ozempic called Rebelsis, and it's the exact same thing. Um, it's, it's still semaglutide, which is what Ozempic is, and it's engineered kind of like they're trying to do with this oral insulin. It's basically engineered to be absorbed by the gut, but it, and it requires really, really complex engineering. But because of that, there's a lot of rules around taking Rebelsis. So you have to take it with a few sips of water on an empty stomach about 30 minutes before eating. And, you know, if you take, if you don't wait long enough or you drink too much water or too little water, it can change how much of it is absorbed. Um, and so, and even then, the efficacy um, is, is slightly less than injected Ozempic. So even though oral Ozempic ex exists, most people prefer the once weekly injection just because I would rather do that than have to worry about a few sips of water, you know, timing everything. So I, my fear with oral insulin is that it's going to come with these caveats that just won't make it worthwhile. Like whether the caveat is, you know, having to take it with a few sips of water 30 minutes before eating, or whether the caveat is if you take five units of oral insulin, it's going to be somewhere between four and six units. Like, I don't know how excited people will be about that, you know, if there's uncertainty. Because I just think in, in the, the practical execution of it, it won't be as clean as you think. Okay, gotcha. And so next and lastly, I kind of want to get into just like the price of insulin. I think that it, it is somewhat relevant to all this. And and I kind of just want to start with why insulin is so expensive. And I guess I'm wondering, is that because it's expensive to produce or is it obviously we're talking about so much research going on. Like, is it the research and development that's really raising these costs? And then obviously there's also corporate greed is it a combination of these? Like, what do you, what do you think? Oh gosh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I think in the end, a lot of it is corporations are going to be corporations, right? I, I think the people, the people at these corporations are, are, you know, you and I interact all the time with people that work for corporations. And I, I, I think the people are all very well-intentioned. But in the end, corporations are desi designed to generate profit for their shareholders and so I think all things being said, they're, they're not incentivized to um, lower the price of medications. And so, you know, when external pressures arise, I think they've all, I, I do appreciate the fact that, you know, all these insulin companies have really drastically changed the pricing of their insulin this year. But I don't think that two years ago, they couldn't have done the same thing, you know? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I there's a lot that, takes place. Um, one of the things that I'm sure you've hear, heard about, but a lot of people may not know, is there's there's other middlemen that are playing a role in the price of insulin as well. There's something called pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs that are basically middlemen between your insurance company and the pharmaceutical company, and they play a huge role in the price of insulin or medications in general. So I, I think, unfortunately, um, 
that's where, you know, the American healthcare system is really broken. And the hard part is you can't even just, I, if it's not even just one clear problem, you know, because the, the pharma companies blame the PBMs, the PBMs blame, you know, mm. the pharma companies. And so there's just a lot of ambiguity as to what, who exactly is to blame. But, but you know, not being a, a manufacturing expert, at least from what I can tell, it, it shouldn't be, you know, a thousand dollars a month to, to produce a vial of insulin. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we touched on this earlier a little bit, but companies are lowering prices of some insulins, right? What, what's happened there recently? Yeah. I mean, there's been a huge, there's been a lot of change and I think, you know, not that I'm, um, (laughs) shilling for, uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies, but because of government pressure and because of public pressure, they really, there really are good pricing options. I think that people don't fully appreciate. And to be fair, they're not super accessible, like in in the sense that they're not like, it's not obvious, right? You kind of have to do your homework to understand how to take advantage of these discounted prices. But all the insulin manufacturers have significantly lowered the price of their insulins to around $35 a month. And so I do think that that is a huge deal. So for example, every once in a while I'll tell a patient either they lost their, you know, they uh they they lost their job or they're in a financial hardship situation and I'll say, "Hey, you can get, you know, Humala, any Lilly insulin product for $35 a month." And I'm checking and it looks like Novo has a similar product now where you can get any um combo of Novo Nordisk products for $35 a month. So there are cheaper options available. The challenge is, you know, if you go to the pharmacy, no one's going to tell you right? No one's going to tell you like, hey, if you go to the website and get the coupon, you can get it for $35 a month. Um, And so a lot of times people just don't know. And the other challenge I know that a lot of people are frustrated with is a lot of these plans require you to have some sort of commercial insurance. So it helps, you know, the many people in the country that have some sort of commercial insurance. But I think it where it's still lacking the people that have absolutely no health insurance and, you know, obviously those are the people that are most in need. And I think it is hard for them to get insulin at affordable prices, which um, is really unfortunate. Yeah. Now, I want to end with this. Out of everything we've talked about today or may have not even talked about, what are you most excited or hopeful for when it comes to insulin innovation? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, or it could be most beneficial to your patients. What makes me most excited about insulin innovation, it's kind of similar to what we talked about in diabetes technology innovation, which is that there's just going to be so many more options available on the market and different people are different and they all have, you know, some people really love a Frezza. Other people just don't want to carry on to Frezza. They don't like the feeling of how it feels in their throat or whatever. Um, And so it's really nice to be able to pick and choose what you want because every person is unique. So I think that's what makes me excited is that, you know, some people, weekly long-acting insulin for them is going to be perfect. Maybe they're not varying their activity levels that much. Um, You know, some people will love automated insulin delivery and the fascinating advances in technology there. Um, I mean, one thing we didn't even talk about was, you know, these type 2 diabetes meds in the type 1 population, because in a way, a medication like Ozempic actually helps the speed of insulin on the back end. So you know, when your blood sugar rises after a meal, um, you want insulin to work faster. But Ozempic almost does it on the back end. It actually delays the absorption of your food. So your blood sugar rises slower after your meal. 
So you can almost kind of work on it from both ends. You can have a faster insulin and kind of slow down the absorption of your food with Ozempic to, to kind of have a double impact on the timing of matching the timing of the spike in your blood sugar after a meal. So I just love the fact that there's more and more options on the market. And I think people will be able to kind of choose and build their toolkit in the way that they want. Yeah. Uh, I got into Ozempic a little bit in one of my recent episodes on IAPS. Um, Teresa in that episode's using Ozempic and she's having phenomenal results in glucose control with that paired with IAPS. And and I want to have an entire episode on this podcast devoted yeah. to that. And that's kind of why I didn't get into it. Um, but obviously it is so connected. So if anyone's listening to this right now, stay tuned for an episode on um, on Ozempic and really, I guess, all GLP-1 drugs and I guess how they work. I, I really don't know a ton other than they slow digestion. So <laughs> yeah, so I want to learn more about yeah, that. Yeah, they're but, really um, fascinating. And I think that episode will be really meaningful. Um, the challenge uh, which everybody is actually facing, whether you have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, is coverage, right? So a lot of insurance companies now are not covering things like Ozempic for type 1 diabetes. So so that's kind of the challenge. But I do agree that the efficacy, like it, I've seen it really, really help my patients um, with type 1 diabetes improve their blood sugar control. Wow. Okay, yeah. More questions are popping up. So I'm excited to <laughs> to learn more about that. David, thank you so much. This was so interesting. I learned a ton. Um, and I'm also even more excited about where we're going and all the tech and like the most important piece of technology, which is this liquid that, you know, keeps us all alive and, and thriving. Um, so yeah, thank you for all the information. It was great having you back on the show. Of course. Yeah, I love it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I am so excited about the future of insulin and I hope we get faster acting insulins soon. I also want to check out a Frezza. I'm definitely going to have David back on the show to talk about the GLP-1 drugs like Ozempic, and I want to hear how those are being used. Those type 2 diabetes drugs are being used for type 1s. New episodes of this podcast release every Monday wherever you listen, and here on YouTube, there is a link to my channel and all my social accounts in today's show notes. I'm Justin, and I'll see you next week.